0: thank you how's it going everyone uh john here the host of spear talk and today we are welcoming the uh the tech savvy uh doug smith here and uh what's kind of funny before we started filming we we're having issues with uh technology and uh i think you can agree doug that uh technology is really not uh, our forte here
1: no not for me anyway <laughs>
0: and uh So, Doug, if you guys aren't familiar with the story, is the co-author of Goon, the true story of an unlikely journey into minor league hockey, which Hollywood made a couple of movies um, starring Sean William Scott called Goon and Goon 2. Uh, And what's really mesmerizing for you and why I reached out is that you've actually been a member of law enforcement for a really long time. And the idea of you being an on-ice enforcer to actually become an enforcer for the, the public and be a, a a real life superhero for people that need the help for law enforcement. It's kind of a cool, man, really cool story.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of people try to link the two together. You know, there's a, definitely a little bit of a crossover and, and there certainly is some similarity, um, you know, on the ice, I was paid to be my team's protector. I, I would go out and defend against the other bullies who were trying to, maybe hurt some of my teammates and, uh, and, and today in police work, you know, I'm out in the public trying to defend the innocent people from criminals that are trying to take advantage of them.
0: Have you ever come across in your own, like for me, I'm trying to visualize you have this, you act one way on the ice as an enforcer, but you can't act necessarily act that way on the streets as a cop because there is a certain level of, uh, we could get into the whole breakdown of law enforcement and all that like, stuff like that. But is it tough to, is there a switch when you were fighting, you hit that switch to become an enforcer. But when you're dealing with, say, a suspect that, like, how, is, there, is it the same switch you have to hit to get locked in to when you have to do do whatever you have to do?
1: Well, I mean, I know what you're trying to get at. And, and you know, on the ice, you could definitely afford to be aggressive and you can right. certainly go after somebody, so to speak, and you might be penalized, but you're certainly not going to be held to the standards that you are as a police officer today, which right. over the last five, six, seven years have really magnified. I mean, cops are really under the magnifying glass. I mean, not only physically, but even verbally, you really have to be careful what you say. So to answer your question, I mean, I don't really have a switch that I could hit. You just always have to have it basically turned off because if you blow up and there's someone there with a cell phone and they video this and, and you're out of line and you're out of character, um, you're going to lose because you're going to lose your job and you could be sued and you're going to be scrutinized on media. So you really have to behave yourself unless it's warranted. And, and again, kind of like hockey. I mean, if someone goes after me playing hockey or they go after one of my teammates just like the bad guy in the street if i if I'm trying to be verbally appropriate to tell him, you know, stop or freeze or or whatever the circumstance is, and he's not compliant, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, sometimes you have to step up your game a little bit, but you still have to be careful
0: right. When I was in the secret service under the Obama administration, like it went, at, the, at the tail end of his second inauguration, I left and went private to what I'm doing now, and that right then, I kind of sense that there was this push, whether it's warranted or we we don't have to discuss that. But the media or a group of people are really going after law enforcement and the stuff they say and the protesting and the defunding. And mentally, I don't take back my time being a cop and serving the public. I loved it. I loved the training, loved the experiences. And you have good and bad days, but I don't know if I could go in there right now or be active in it like yourself right now when the whole last year with this whole push to let's defund the police, yet these guys, these men and women still have to go out and do their jobs while sometimes even their superiors are being hamstrung by a local county or state. And it's just I don't know if you can kind of touch upon kind of your mental kind of wherewithal and dealing with it with your family and stuff where it's like you see in the news every other day, oh screw this cop or defund cops here. Yet there's men and women dying every day in the line of duty.
1: Yeah, it's certainly a fine line today compared to what it was back when, I mean, I became a cop back in 1986. Wow. And I mean, back in that day, you know, it was honorable and prestigious to be a cop. And unfortunately, today, you almost have a bullseye on your back because people are gunning for you. And I don't mean just physically they are. I mean, but, you know, behind your back, like you said, they're, they're trying to drum up all these ways of getting rid of you, uh, whether it's defunding your you know, department and, and the, and the town's, uh, resources. I mean, it's just, it's really tough to be a cop today. Um, you know, if you work in a big city and you're out on the street, walking the beat, you're really in the mix. And, um, and for me personally, I'm a little more fortunate, not that anything can't happen where I'm at, obviously, but I'm South of Boston. I'm in a really good community and, uh, for the most part, I would say, I think our citizens and our, our townspeople appreciate what we do and we're there for them. Um, but believe me, like you said, I know there's a lot of other guys that have this job that want to leave now like and then they can't because they're right. stuck until they get their retirement and you're not going to go anywhere else in the meantime. But guys that have 10, 12, 15 years to go, their stranglehold is is right around their throat because they have no nowhere to go.
0: And it's, it's just so disheartening because that not only do you have the added stress of whatever you're doing with at home, whether it's a sick kid or spouse issues or whatever, it could be good stuff, but you have the, then you have who you work with, your, all your department, then you have the stuff on the street, then you have this media. It's just, it's, I'm so amazed how law enforcement officers, men and women are able to do their job so well in light of everything going on. And
1: And, and you know what, not to interrupt you, but, you know, you, you said something a minute ago, you know, having a family and all that, you know, everyone gets up in the morning and you go to work, no matter what your job is, sure. nine to five, it is what it is, but you all expect to come home. And as a cop, even a fireman, he can have an accident, but nevertheless, a cop, you know, it, it does definitely bother me and a lot of other people when they say things like, well, you knew what you were signing up for. Well, you know what? I didn't take into consideration that I could get hurt or shot and killed as easily as you're making it out to be today. Right, Uh, I know the realism is there. I I could simply walk into a a bad situation and and catch a bullet or or whatever. But I mean, for the most part, I expect to go home just like every other cop does. And and in today's society, there's a lot of people that don't care if you do.
0: It's so, my job was private security. Like, my in my in my during my day, if I'm out with a client or going to a festival or a show with a band, I know I've advanced, I've done the security stuff where I can control. And I also know that there could be a guy, an armed gun, an active shooter. I know that could happen, but the chance of it happening is so slim to none. Whereas, your career path that could happen every day. You're dealing with a domestic every day, you're something that's as simple as a drunk guy or girl at a bar could turn into. Uh, a crime scene and it's just like these people that say, well, you chose your career well, yeah, I did chose my career, but thank God I did or someone like you did because you're able to talk and spew this rhetoric that only pushes the human race that far back
1: right. and again, like I said, I mean it's just one of those things where the public really is dominating today where we are as police officers and uh, and, and we don't have much of a say anymore, unfortunately.
0: The um, that police officer that lost his life in that active shooter in Colorado, I think last week or two weeks ago. Right, right. Um, it's, it And obviously I, I had the career, the, the law enforcement, so I have that connection to it. But every time I see an officer that dies in the line of duty or a service member or fire, anyone that gives themselves up, it just, it kind of makes you think that it's like, this is real life. Like this is real right here. This is someone that, Right, it's it's it, it for I don't know how to explain it. Where it's like you really realize that this is a a guy that was a sheepdog protecting whoever, and he gives up his life so selflessly, and it's just right. It, it's pretty amazing.
1: Right. And there's still a lot of people that have that mentality as a police officer. They're still going to answer that 911 emergency call. They're still going to be first on the scene, even if it's a, a house fire or a car accident. <clears throat> they're still running right. full speed ahead. And, and you know, it's tough to break that. You know, it's, 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 it's so many people will say to you, you know what, I'm sick of the public. I'm not dealing with them anymore. But when the bell rings, you nope. still react because that's what you're trained to do. So... It, it, like I said, it, it's such a fine line to walk. The
0: uh, one of the things I loved about law enforcement is like there's that competitiveness between other agencies, whether it's FBI or D.A. All softball games. Have you ever? I mean, do you do your departments or state police stuff? Do stuff where it's kind of like let's play hockey, but then they see you coming around the uh, blue line, they're like, oh, watch out!
1: <laughs> um, you know what? I used to play a lot of pickup hockey and and hockey. Um, police leagues so to speak and and uh you know police would play the fire department the police play state police stuff like yep. that we traveled other states um and you know it, it's one of those things where sometimes i've had people that knew who i was and they might try to you know want to show really? off in front of their friends uh but most of the time people don't really know who i am i just you know i'm out skating around like everybody else just getting a workout um I think at my age, my fighting days are over, which is okay with me. Right. Um, so maybe I'll just live off a reputation.
0: <laughs> I like that. And so how did you kind of get into the law enforcement career with hockey still active in your, in your life?
1: Well, I grew up in a small town, like I said earlier, south of Boston. And, you know, I went to a gym uh, that was basically run by police officers. It was actually called the Hanover Police Boys Club. And it was there where I got to, as a 14, 15-year-old kid, I got to work out. I, I boxed there. I worked out with cops. And I just kind of always knew I wanted to be a cop. The hockey thing kind of came in between, and it was just one of those opportunities that I, I the door was open so quickly for me with hockey, I couldn't say no to it. And it definitely put a little um, delay on my police career. But when I was done with hockey, that door was still open for me. Uh, I was Fortunate to have, you know, the police chief and other people who had liked me. And they kind of said, run with this hockey as long as you can, because there's certainly a small window of opportunity before you're either too old or you get injured. So try to make the most of it, and your job will be here when you get back. So I was obviously pretty fortunate.
0: For those that aren't aware, that say haven't seen the movie Slapshot or uh, Good itself or these other movies, the idea of the enforcer, while well, If you could kind of explain what the deal, what the role of an enforcer is on a team where people just assume, oh, it's just about fighting, but it's much more than that.
1: Well, I mean, the backbone is fighting, of course, but um, to break it down a little bit more, I mean, you know, if you're on a team that's being bullied and if you're getting run out of the rank every night by guys who might be bigger and stronger and they're specifically out there to hurt you. And you don't have somebody on your team on your bench who can go out and say to that other guy, cut the shit, you know, or right. just me and you, me and you will, you know, we'll face off because I don't want, you know, if I play for the Boston Bruins, say, I don't want another team's tough guy chasing around, you know, Bergeron or Marchant or Krejci, one of the skilled guys. But that's what used to happen back in the day. So a guy like me, I'm like an insurance policy. I'm on the bench, and if I'm needed, I just get a tap on the shoulder. Hey, right over there, number 19, he's running around like a jerk. Go take care of him. And that's kind of how it works. Now, again, obviously there's fighting involved. It's a little barbaric. But the point, though, is you're you're there to protect those players who are the team's investment. They bring the fans in. They are going to win you a championship. And if they're hurt because they get physically beat up, or they are scared because someone's chasing them around the rank every night, you're not gonna win. And they can't fulfill their full obligation to the team as an athlete.
0: I love hearing stories of like Wade Gretzky and some of those all-time great iconic sports figures in hockey. Yet they always say that half the reason why they're successful is because they had that guy on their bench that would literally go to the corner and fight that entire team if they slash the guy wrong or if they right. say something. I just love that mentality where You're like a, a, a warrior, like a Greek Roman warrior just out there with your shield and doing that for your team.
1: Right. And like you said, I mean, any guy who has had a luxurious career in the NHL, like a Gretzky, a Lemieux, an Eisenman, you can go on and on and on. Bobby Orr. I mean, you know, whoever you want to talk about, there was always one or two guys who were there to protect him so nobody could take advantage and run him out of the rink and hurt him and shorten his career. And, um, you know, again, like I said, I know some people aren't into that style of hockey and those people have gotten their wish because the game has changed dramatically over the last few years. But you're slowly seeing that there are still a couple of teams today that employ a tough guy who are now taking advantage of the teams that have decided to go all skill and, they're getting pushed around and it's noticeable. And you're going to see the cycle come around that team's going to stop picking up at least one guy who can play, but also is willing to step up when he right has now.
0: Do you think I'm glad you brought it up? Cause NFL NHL right now, um, see I've born and raised in Massachusetts. So I grew up my era when I started going to give like PJ stock of the Bruins, like that fourth winger that would go. get the crowd going if they're down four yep. or nothing or if they're up two one. And, I, the last couple of years, probably the last five or six, um, I noticed that, like you said, the violence level of violence is being toned down. They're stopping the fights. Do you think that's a sponsorship uh, coming down from the top down, and saying, "Hey, we need to make this more family orientated," or is this like a is this a money thing where it's like we can't keep having these players fighting?
1: You know, I would say that behind closed doors, a lot of GMs and owners of teams will even probably say to you that a fight once in a while gets everybody up on their feet correct and it's necessary sometimes for the actual event that just took place on the ice because you know hockey players they've always policed themselves and if you don't and the referee misses a call the escalation of anger gets higher and higher and by the third period so to speak it's a powder keg and there's a there's a madness going on out there people are running at each other or cross-checking each other or whatnot but the point that you brought up is is a good one because I think a lot of people who enjoy hockey fighting and, and the physicalness of the game are missing that today and they're making their voices heard and that's why you've never heard the um the chairman there what's his name Batman
0: Ab Gary yep
1: Anytime you talk about fighting, he always tries to skate away from it because he knows what it does, and he knows what the players want. The players understand you can't have a goon, but you got to at least have someone that will step up when needed. And if you abolish it outright, you're going to get cheap shots from behind. You're going to get cross-checks. You're going to get all kinds of dirty plays, and that's where careers end early. So if you have a policeman on the bench, no pun intended. Right. There you go. That might not happen.
0: Now, let me ask you this. Obviously, you knew what your job was, but when you see a, a guy, the player, get chippy with your star player in the corner, cross-check from behind, whatever, and it's not called, at that moment, are you like, oh, it's it's going on? Or are you waiting for your coach to be like, hey, tap you on the shoulder? And then when that, when that does happen, how quick is it for you to react and get into that mindset that you got to go out there and fight?
1: You know, there's always a level of physical game that takes place out in the ice. And there's, you know, there's your average hit. And then there's maybe a little rough stuff. Yeah. but Then there's the cheap stuff. And, you know, to watch a tough guy or a guy who can play physical kind of rough up a little bit your f- finesse player. Eh, you know, it's part of the game. If You got to take a hit once in a while. Even if you're a finesse guy, right. Wayne Gretzky got hit. It's irrelevant. It, it always happened. But it's the extra stuff at the end, you know, maybe a push in the face or, you know, a chop on the back of the ankles with a stick. That stuff brings the attention of the other team's tough guy, the other team's enforcer, where no coach ever has to say to you, go out and do your job because you know what your job is. You're sitting there watching the game. You're watching every tough guy who gets his shift before you. And what did he just do? And if he's going to act that way, and he's not going to confront me and square it up and even it out then i'm going to do the same thing that he's doing i'm going after your skilled guy to make it even
0: right it's very fascinating that whole that mindset where you're, you're playing games but they all the other team also has to know that hey this 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 get really this get even real quick here and it's just very uh fascinating now what's the worst injury you've had
1: You know, I've actually been really fortunate and I don't know how, but, uh, you know, I've taken my dings on the face. I've gotten black eyes and I've got some stitches and, um, you know, busted up hands from hitting helmets. But I mean, you know, for the nature of that actual activity, which is bare knuckle fighting, there's no gloves, there's no, you know, protective gear like boxing, say, um, you know, I think I've done okay, um, I think the majority of my damage has come prior to hockey when I was an amateur boxer and uh, maybe a punk kid in the street, having my street fights in the neighborhood, but uh, hockey, I actually, you know, I lost a bunch, but I didn't really get carried off the ice. So I was fortunate.
0: How? So that's the reason I asked that is because at the end of the movie, good, obviously it's Hollywood and the violence. And it's kind of like this operatic kind of like finale where it's blood everywhere. And when, so would you tell your would they when they you release your book and the producers whoever they hey we're gonna do this how much input do you have on hey this is what the violence really was like
1: so I didn't write the script I can tell you that and I only had very limited consultations with them prior to them actually shooting and okay. uh, you know finalizing the script and it was only things like you know hey you know hey doug what would you do on this situation? Like you line up next to a guy, how do you get him to fight you? Or why are you going out to fight? What did that guy just do? Or you know, what's it like on a Friday night after a game? What are you doing? Are you going to a bar and having beers? Are you just going home and going to bed? You know, like a little bit of insight was all I really provided. But the directors and producers, they, they certainly had the script all to themselves. Um, for those people that haven't seen the movie, I would say it's probably... Thirty percent realistic to my book, which is an autobiography, of course.
0: Right. Um, so there's
1: a lot of Hollywood script in the movie. It's again, I've said this before. It wasn't the Doug Smith story. They used my book as a background to launch the movie, but um, they just had to write a lot of funny scripted things in there to sell. Right. My personal story isn't that interesting.
0: <laughs> and, uh, no, I think the book's great. The uh, yeah. It, it, so when you see that movie, it, it must be kind of cool though. It's like, even though it's, they say 30% of your whatever, it still got made because it was inspired by your story. And so there must be a, a great feeling to that where it's like, man, this is, this is really cool. Like here's just an enforcer. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I wrote, wrote about a biography that caught the attention of people. Like this is a real life blue collar type of story.
1: I think the book did very well, and I think the book caught the attention of Hollywood because, again, for those who don't know my story, I didn't start skating until I was 19, Now, which is really – it is crazy. I mean, I didn't play hockey as a kid growing up. I didn't play peewees and mites. I didn't play high school. I didn't start skating until I was out of high school, and I didn't play my first organized hockey game with, like, a referee in a league until I was almost 22. But by the time i was 23 i was in a pro camp trying to fight for a job so the story of an underdog is really where it's at and um, i was very fortunate that i was athletic and i was able to pick up skating relatively quickly and um i wasn't out there burning up and down the sheet of ice and and looking like wayne gretzky by a long shot but my purpose was at least to have enough skating ability to get out there and do the job that I was going to be hired for, which was to be a protector.
0: Now, how hard was it that transition to learning? Obviously, being your boxing background, but when you put skates on that, it—there's people that can even skate, but when you actually have to do the the tussle and the grabbing and the fighting—is what is the art form to that? Do you actually teach people kind of how to position yourself and how to kind of do the stuff you do?
1: So again, as I mentioned earlier, I had an amateur boxing background here in the Massachusetts area. I fought in the new England golden gloves and, and some other tournaments as a kid growing up. And, and obviously hockey fighting is a lot different than boxing. Um, you know, balance is a huge issue on the ice. I mean, even the pros that you watch today, when they fight, half of them fall down and, and they've been skating since they were little kids. So for me, balance was a huge issue, but you know, one of my best friends, Adam Fertasio, who grew up in my hometown of Hanover, he actually wrote the book. And he was the one who got me on the ice at 19. And he was the one that taught me balance and how to fight and how to use my boxing background to possibly make it to the minor leagues as like a hockey enforcer. So balance was huge for me. Um, you know, back then I was six foot two, two hundred and forty pounds, two hundred and fifty pounds. I was a weightlifter. So having that extra weight as a big kid. And learning balance on skates was really hard to do for me. But, um, like I said, Adam was a, a great teacher and a motivator for me. And, you know, not to jump ahead, but after I retired, I got to work for the Boston Bruins and I got to work for six other NHL teams, being an instructor on the ice with the NHL players. Teaching them how to defend themselves, and it wasn't so much teaching them to be fighters, but just in case something blows up on the ice, and and you get peered off with a guy, and you're maybe maybe you're a college kid, maybe you're a European player that never right. plays North American style hockey, and you don't even know how to defend right. yourself.
0: You got caught in the corner.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, you don't want to be a college player getting co- grabbed by like Terry O'Reilly, or PJ Stock, and getting killed. So my transition from being a player to a coach, the both of them were similar in the sense that I advocated balance with your fighting because it's huge.
0: Now you also coach relatively younger kids outside the semi-pro professional. Is it weird or with, obviously with your background career, you can't necessarily teach violence at that age, but how, how do you kind of work around the idea that, as you go up and level and get older and play the sport violence does kind of pick up in that uh in that realm
1: well i was fortunate to uh, be a high school hockey coach for the high school that i graduated for Hanover high school in massachusetts and in fact we won uh, three state championships and i was very honored and i think it was 2015 i got nominated into the massachusetts hockey hall of fame awesome. as, as a coach and um you're right in high school you can't fight in college you can't fight and at that age for me to be a coach was more to be a motivator and to try to at least show kids hey listen if i can make it to where i made it at the age that i started there's no reason why you can't work hard too and 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 climb that ladder so for me um you know it wasn't about teaching kids at that age and that grade level in high school to be fighters because it was unnecessary. So it was was something that I didn't even have to, you know, fall back on.
0: One of the things I love about hockey, specifically a professional um, is the vibe for the playoffs. And I remember God, I think 96 Bruins versus Devils, the old Boston garden. I'm there with my dad and the, the just incredible atmosphere and I just remember – I think they lost. They did lose. And I'm just kind of like – it was such a – because I went to a game earlier that season, and I'm like, oh, regular games sold out. But the playoffs – I don't know what it is about playoff hockey, but it just seems like it becomes like this whole other beast. What What is that? Is it because it's dwindling down, or are these players kicking up a notch where it's like this is real, this is it?
1: Well, I mean, as far as the the tempo of the game is certainly turned up because – Literally, you've got either a five- or a seven-game series, and if you lose one game, you're already behind the eight ball, and there's no time for nonsense, which is everyone's argument. Everyone can say, well, how come in playoff hockey, there's no fighting? Right. Well, because it's too, it's too risky. You could get the extra penalty. You could get the instigator. The referee might not see what happened to you earlier, but he sees the retribution that you just yep. gave to the next guy. Next thing you know, you are in the box, The other team's on the power play, and like I said, you know, in a seven-game series, it's too risky to fight. So you might just say, you know what, John, I played against you tonight and you were cheap to me, but I'm going to get you next October or November when the regular season starts. And that happens a lot. Guys remember, and they say, okay, remember you cheap shot at me and I couldn't risk going after you in the playoffs. It's sad, but that's the way it works. And again, like I said, it's a great argument for people that hate hockey fighting, and they say, well, then how come in the playoffs there's hardly ever any fighting? It's too risky. There's too much to lose if you're the one that gets called out by the ref.
0: Very fascinating. Did you ever have vendettas like that where you had to wait weeks or months or even a year to get that person back?
1: I get to play in the minor leagues and not the NHL. In the minor leagues, almost anything goes, so... I never had to wait for anyone because even if I got suspended for jumping off the bench after someone, I got them that game.
0: <laughs> now, I'm glad you bring up the AHL. I, for whatever reason, like uh, the Worcester Ice Cats, I believe, um, uh, teams like that growing up where your friends and stuff through high school, like uh, the Bruins game might be too expensive. So I would go to Worcester Centrum or whatever AHL, probably I- Bruins, and – I, for every, reason, I had more fun there. Right. Because the, the attitude of the players was, you you had veterans that were not good enough that were playing because they still loved the game. You had young guys that were playing to get up to the next level, but it was just an interesting kind of like they they were having so much fun and the idea that there was fights there was like it just seemed like right. that atmosphere down there was just awesome.
1: Right. And and again, like we said earlier, I mean, you know. When a fight breaks out in a game, no matter what level of hockey it is, no one's going to get a drink or a popcorn. They stand up and they're like, you know, they don't want to blink because they they want to watch the fight. Again, there's other people that think it's disgusting and it's ruining the game. But nevertheless, most fans enjoy that.
0: You don't hear a lot of off-ice drama like TMZ stuff with players. I mean, you'll have the random, and it's not a good thing, but DUI – in the grand scheme of things for athletes, especially when you have football players with domestics and uh, violence and or baseball players smuggling drugs. And so do you think it's because the hockey has that kind of gentleman system where it's like, we'll have the enforcers, we'll police ourselves on the ice and then off the ice, we kind of let our, because you don't really see people going at each other outside their ice rink.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's tough to categorize people on why certain athletes in certain sports do things they do. I mean, I can throw a twist on that, and I can say, how come it seems like every who basketball player who's a multimillionaire ends up bankrupt, but you never get yeah. lucky players that are bankrupt? Right. I mean, how they don't even make as much money as those guys. Right. How are they staying afloat, and you can't? Like, what's the mentality? So there's, it's tough to categorize, like I said, certain sports and who plays what and – Their upbringing, I think it's all about upbringing and and who your parents are possibly. But I mean, I think the the lifespan of a hockey player is very short. I think they realize that. And, you know, whether you're some kid from a farm out in Saskatchewan and you get a year or two under your belt where you're making the league minimum, you're going to hoard every penny and try to be smart with it. Um, You know, I, I understand that mentality. Whereas you know maybe basketball, or baseball, or football guys, they might last a couple extra years and, and get that more money under their belt where they can spend freely. But um, you know, it's certainly hockey players are a different breed. There's no choice about it.
0: Yeah, it's just fascinating. Like they dress nice. They and even the <laughs> spectacle of the the outdoors games. Um, it's it's just there's just something very like I don't know where it was. I think a couple weeks, months ago. Where they had like the uh, the I think the Bruins played the Flyers and you right had like the mountains in the background there's yeah. just there's just a spectacle to that sport right um,
1: now along the uh, along some river or some lake yeah. lake something or other it was it's in spectacular amazing spectacular you
0: it was like Mystery Alaska yeah. uh, so the, with 2020 with the, the pandemic that's actually still affecting stuff um, the players the athletes that had to play in the bubble. Is that something, how would you have kind of dealt with that as a player that you still had to play, but now it's changing up your kind of your routine, what you're used to?
1: You know, I'll tell you who it really affects. It affects the guys who are married with children because now you're away from home, you know, maybe you're FaceTiming your family every night after a game or after practice or whatever. But I mean, you're kind of a hostage held in a situation where you got to keep a mental focus on what's at hand, which is to stay in shape and, and win the games and let's make the best of it. Cause we're trapped here. We should at least win the game to make it worthy. If you're a single guy, eh, you know, might not be all that bad, but again, if you're married and you've got kids and your kids are whining every night, when are you coming home, daddy, you got to watch this on your cell phone because your kids are crying, going to bed at night. I want you home. You know, I mean, it's a tough thing for them to have to absorb. And I, I certainly want to be there. I, I wouldn't, I mean, you know, Right. You, you would be there, but you wouldn't want to be.
0: Right. Now, how has the pandemic affected your law enforcement in the sense of just this pandemic or virus affecting everyone? And has it changed your kind of approach uh towards policing at all?
1: Well, I think, you know, when the whole communities as a whole are shut down, everything is shut down. I mean, when there's no bars that are open or they're closing very early, um there's no nightlife uh, people are staying in um you know it, maybe there's a rise i would say for me in like domestics to go to people's houses you know they're, they're trapped inside so what do people do you know maybe they drink a little more maybe they maybe they party a little bit more but um you know as as a cop You know, you just don't see the volume of traffic and the the volume of incidents that you normally would because everything is kind of locked down. And it's 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 kind of sad, you know,
0: I I had a I was thinking exact the exact opposite way in the sense of I pictured the bad guys are always going to be bad guys. And while this affects the good guys, I picture the bad guys or whatever using this as a means to cause more. So I'm glad to hear that you're not out there or we're out there last year dealing with more vagrancy or more issues in terms of bad guys just doing what they normally do.
1: Right. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Um, Even the bad guys are staying low because if you think about it, whose house are they going to break into? Who's not home? Everyone's home. home. Everyone's home. (laughs) Whose car are you going to break into where they're not in the driveway maybe looking out the window? And if you're a bad guy and you are out raising hell, well, there's not other people driving around on the road that often. You're going to get caught maybe because you can't get in the flow of traffic. So if you're a bad guy, you're kind of thinking, Jesus, where am I going to go to make my next score where I'm not going to get tagged? Right, Because all eyes are on me because there's no one else around. I can't mix in.
0: Love it. (laughs) (laughs) So before I let you go, Doug, uh, obviously your book, Goo, The True Story of an Unlikely Journey into a Minor League Hockey. um, I picked mine up on Amazon. I believe you're at the second edition or third edition now. Right. Uh, So people could grab that book. It's an awesome read. And do you do anything social media wise? I mean obviously with law enforcement it's kind of tough. You could
1: Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook, I'm under my name Douglas Smith and I'm on Instagram and you know, I try to be social, you know, to a point um I certainly do not involve my profession as a police officer on those social pages. Yep. It's all about hockey, it's all about my background and whether it's my book or the movie um you know, I try to interact with everyone and it, and it goes both ways. I, I'll interact with people who say I suck and I interact with people who say I'm great because I, I try to be level headed because everyone has an opinion. And, um, you know, police work definitely takes a back seat to social media for me anyway, because I certainly understand that there's been a huge curve and a change. And a lot of people, they just don't support the police like they used to. I'm okay with that. I get it because I know that, you know what? There might be a day that you need me and you're going to call nine one one and I'm going to still show up for you. And I would love to be able to say to you before I walk in your front door to save you, aren't you the guy that hates cops? Didn't you want to defund me? Right. But don't worry. I'll still help you out. Right. So, you know, social media, like I said, I stay away from police issues. It's all about hockey for me.
0: Now, when you retire, do you want to – do more coaching and more stuff with hockey, or you just kinda of wanna just enjoy retirement.
1: I have a 10 year old daughter and a 12 year old daughter. Oh, college and is i never, I can never see myself retiring. <laughs> I think I'm trapped. But uh, you're right. I mean, college, right? I'm I'm, right? I'm doomed.
0: You're gonna be start doing those uh, celebrity boxing fights with uh yeah,
1: where I, I get hammered for peanuts, right? You fight uh,
0: some uh Yeah, TV some met your
1: husband. <laughs> I'll but, do whatever uh, it takes.
0: But, uh, Doug, this has been great. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for your service and uh, to the community as a police officer. And uh, this has been great.
1: And uh, Stay safe, and we'll talk soon. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you, Doug. Okay, pal.
0: Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate.
1: The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod Six One Seven, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts.